Well, good morning again. Exciting week this week. Uh, Ari and Christian had their baby. If you didn't know that already, Christiana is here. And she is a cutie. All right. Well, um, we're going to continue our Harmony of the Gospels. Um, and this morning, that means that we have three texts that we're going to um, read through in preparation for considering this event in the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, we'll start over in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to them, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, but am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he is one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Mark chapter 10 Verses 17 through 31. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus looking around said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus again answered and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Luke chapter 18, 
verses 18 through 30. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to a quite familiar event in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we ask that you would help us to focus with particular attention and to not just gloss over things because we've read them before or considered something from it before or heard a sermon on the text before. Pray that you would give a freshness to our minds and that you would bring new insight to us and that we would not only understand these things better and more accurately, but that you would also change our hearts through the process, and that our wills would be transformed as your Holy Spirit teaches us, transforms us more into the image of Jesus. For any in here who are lost, who might end up identifying with even this rich young ruler, I pray that you would grant them eyes to see, that you would give them grace, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they would repent from their sin and trust in Jesus and Find Him as the anchor of their soul, their only hope of eternal life. We pray You would do the work that only You can do, Father, as we make plain, bold proclamation of Your glorious Gospel. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could ask any person who had ever lived any question, who would you ask and what would you ask him? I've wondered what Adam would felt like when he was first created and put in the Garden of Eden and given the responsibility of naming the animals and then given a wife. And then I wonder what they were thinking after the judgment of God came upon them for sinning against the Lord. Surely it would have been interesting to ask Moses what he was thinking and feeling when he came upon the burning bush that was not consumed or what it was like to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground with the waters heaped up on either side. It would be interesting to ask Jonah what it was like to be in the belly of a fish for three days. Or to ask Elisha what it was like to see his mentor Elijah be caught up in a chariot of fire. Or to ask David about the Lord's provision in defeating the giant Goliath. Perhaps you'd like to talk to Peter and ask him what was it like to walk on water. Or the eleven apostles, for that matter, what it was like to see the risen Christ or to have tongues of fire descend on the day of Pentecost. You add to all of those biblical events, other events through history. It would be interesting to talk to Isaac Newton or 
Thomas Edison about their scientific discoveries, or to maybe Gutenberg for the far-reaching impact of his invention, the printing press. It would be intriguing to talk to Columbus and ask him what it was like to set foot on the new world. Or how about Neil Armstrong, what it was like to set foot on the moon. Perhaps you'd like to talk to some of the most famous presidents, like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Or maybe you'd like to sit down with a world-renowned artist like Michelangelo or Da Vinci or Monet or Picasso. Can't forget great composers like Vivaldi or Handel or Bach or Beethoven, Brahms or Wagner. Nor neglect the possibility of sitting down with some of the greatest singers ever. Like Pavarotti, right, Justin? Maybe you like books and you'd love to sit down with Homer or Shakespeare or Tolstoy or Mark Twain or J.R.R. Tolkien. Maybe movies are more your thing and you'd love to have a meeting with Ben Affleck or Sandra Bullock or Nicolas Cage or Sean Connery. Or maybe sports are what really interests you. And you'd love to have one-on-one time with someone like Michael Jordan or Mario Andretti or Tiger Woods or Tony Hawk or Pele. And then there are all those figures in church history that maybe some of us would like to speak with, like Augustine or Anselm, or Martin Luther, or John Calvin, or Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Owen, or Charles Spurgeon. Upon scanning that list of names, you'll notice that probably the names that piqued your interest the most were those that you had some personal interest in. <laughs> because something about those people and their life work, or their study, or their life experience connects with something that you yourself are interested in. If you have no appreciation for art, then your choice would most likely not be Michelangelo. If you could care less about sports, you might not select Michael Jordan or Walter Payton. If you have little care for history, you might not desire to sit down with Christopher Columbus. However, each of those figures could enrich all of our lives. I mean, to have an interview with any of those people from history would be a marvelous experience. But if we had to select just one person, and we were only allowed one question. Who would you pick and what would the question be? Who is the most important person in the history of the world and what is the most important question we could ever ask that person? Surely the person that we select will be dependent upon what our ultimate concern and question is. For example, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't select Will Smith and then ask him a question regarding quantum physics and the theory of relativity. seems that Einstein would be better suited for that question. But if you could care less about quantum physics and the theory of relativity, then I don't think you're going to pick Einstein as the person you want to talk to. In other words, no matter how brilliant an answer we might get from Einstein, being allowed only one person to talk to, is he really the one we'd want to waste our opportunity on? So what is the most important question we could ever ask? And who is the one most qualified to answer it? Well, thanks be to God that we're not constrained to merely dreaming about the possibility of asking the most important person ever the most important question ever asked. We've been given that exact opportunity by reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke here this morning. God in His marvelous providence not only provided the occasion, but allowed for its documentation for us in Scripture And just as if to reiterate the importance of this interaction, God had it recorded three times by three different gospel writers. Certainly, the most important man who ever walked the earth was Jesus Christ. 
And the most pressing question for all men, no matter when you arrive in history, and no matter what your place is in life, and no matter what your job is, and no matter what your gender or your nationality or the language that you speak, the most pressing question for all men is the question that we find upon the lips of this rich young ruler. What does he ask? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how, that's, a, that's a pretty big claim to say this is the most pressing question. How can I say that? Well, what good is life if death is all that there is at the end of this life? If at the end of this life death comes and that's the final note and it's all over, what significance can be found in a life that is here one moment and then gone the next? If this is all that there is, then what meaning can we really find in living? This is the conundrum that atheists and agnostics find themselves up against. If we're a big cosmic accident, what meaning do we really have in living? Why live one way versus another? What does it matter at all? But who is uniquely qualified to answer this question? Who's the one who can answer what must be done to inherit eternal life? Well, I would say the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know about eternal life, you need to talk about to the one who is that very thing. This rich young ruler is uniquely positioned to ask a question that should be burning in all of our hearts. And in the process, we learn from Jesus' response so much about our ministry as Christians in the world around us. How should we go about answering that question? You see, there is good news that we have to share, we who are Christians. We call that evangelism. Sharing the good news. Sharing the evangel. But how should we go about it? You see, this event in Jesus' ministry gives us a glimpse into Jesus' personal evangelism. What does it mean to engage in personal evangelism? How do we answer questions such as these when they come? I've long been convinced that the best way to learn evangelism is to look at the evangelism of Jesus and also his followers, the apostles. I've shared on another occasion, um, one of the most disappointing experiences I had at seminary was going into an evangelism class in which we talked about methods and all the rest and techniques, but didn't engage in a study of the scriptures and examples in which evangelism was being done. Like, oh, here's our construction. Here's a good way to share all that. But we never did a case study and looked through, how did Jesus actually do evangelism? How did Peter do evangelism? How did Paul do evangelism? And we're furnished with so much wonderful example in the Scriptures. There's a multitude of texts that were provided that tell us not only the content of the Gospel, in other words, the, the nature of truth that we have to share, but the nature in which we also proclaim it. There's a rich tapestry of examples of actual evangelism going on. Whether it be in the case of Jesus' preaching, like on the Sermon on the Mount, or Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, or Paul's preaching in Athens and the Areopagus in Acts 17. We have these kind of public proclamation sermon kind of evangelism, but we also have personal evangelism. And here we have Jesus interacting one-on-one with a rich young ruler We don't have to wonder about the proper approach in evangelism. It's not up for grabs. It's not something that we just have to do a bunch of brainstorming regarding. We can read the Scriptures and learn from what God has told us. We've been given models to imitate and follow. What we discover is that the Gospel involves proclamation of good news. And what's the good news? 
The good news is that God can do what is humanly impossible. What leaves us completely undone, God is able to accomplish. You see, God has accomplished the rescue of those who are spiritually dead. He can bring the dead to life. He can free the captives. Those who are unable to enter into God's kingdom are granted access through the work of someone else who worked on their behalf, who left his riches in glory in order to distribute them to those who are completely impoverished. And while this good news is absolutely free to the receiver, it came at the dearest cost. The crucifixion, rejection, and death of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And those who have been saved by His resurrection, which followed His death and burial, are forever changed. And therefore, it carries implications for life now and forevermore. You see, Jesus provides us with instruction on not only what to say when we proclaim the Gospel, but how to say it. Jesus is concerned not only that we communicate truth, but that we do so with integrity. Which means that God cares about our approach, our means. Sometimes we get into this weird thing in America especially, it's maybe because of pragmatism, the unique American philosophy, that if it works, it must be right. You know, if we use this method, if we saw some numerical external results, it must be right. And it's sad that that has so captured so many, I think even well-meaning Christians within the church today, engaging in very improper approaches to evangelism. God cares about not only what we say, but how we say it. He cares about how we treat people. And so this text provides us with two instructions that's so helpful for us in our own personal evangelism. As we look at Jesus engaged in this, we learn for ourselves how we ought to go about it. There's actually kind of two simultaneous lessons going on here. One is for those who are lost, here is the gospel. It's being presented to you. And secondly, for those who are saved, there is here for us a model to imitate as we share the gospel with others. I'm going to split this sermon into two parts. First is the what? Learning the evangel. In other words, saying learning the gospel. What is the gospel, the good news, the evangel? What is that? We need to make sure that we have that clear. And then secondly, we'll talk about the how, learning to evangelize. Let's first talk the what, learning the gospel, learning the evangel. And to start, I want to emphasize the priority of the gospel. Now, by priority, I mean the gospel's superiority in rank as compared to everything else. The gospel should figure first in our thinking. There is nothing else that merits our attention like the gospel. If man's condition and God's coming judgment and the eternal state to come are real and rightly understood, then there can be no matter that should be allowed to vie for attention like this. You understand? I mean, if a person is starving to death, we understand giving them some food is helpful to them. But ultimately, even if we feed them, we don't tell them the gospel then ultimately, eternally, they'll be lost. If this thing has implications for eternity, then it must figure prominently in the, most, in the position of priority in our minds and in our hearts. You see, if we're all destined for eternity, then this life must be spent with eternity in mind. 
This is one of the distinguishing features of those who have been saved. Is that their minds are no longer set on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the spirit. You see, it's those who don't believe the gospel, who are told in Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The priority of the gospel makes the understanding of it crucially important. You see, if this matter is so important, then it's very important that we have this matter straight, that we understand it rightly. But does it really matter in the end how popular we are here on the earth? But does it really matter in the end how much money we've amassed here on earth? What does it really matter in the end how intelligent we became here on the earth? Or what position or power we amassed for ourselves here on the earth? As Mark 8.36 just cuts to the quick. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit or lose his soul? So it's right for this certain ruler to be concerned regarding eternal life. This question is right. It's right for us to be concerned about it. Jesus himself states that in Mark 8.36. What does a prophet man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? He says, you should be concerned about your soul. It is right for you to be concerned about the nature of your soul. So it's right for this certain ruler to come with this concern. He asks, what's necessary for salvation? And that question is only answered by the Gospel. By the way, Matthew 19.20 indicates that he was a young man. Mark 10.17 describes him as a ruler. All three Gospels tell us that he was a man with great possessions and wealth. Thus, as it's famously remembered, the story of the rich, young ruler. The fact that this man was a ruler probably indicated that he was part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish man who had some power within the religious authority structures. If that's the case, he was a member of the highest ruling Jews who presided over a variety of issues, mostly spiritual ones. But that's quite an accomplishment if this man really is young and already a ruler and with great wealth. This guy is your successful businessman and also a clergyman. He most likely had has had discussions like this with other rabbis. I'm sure this question has come up in other circles. And so now he comes to Jesus, whose ministry is becoming more and more well-known, and he comes to ask Jesus a very crucial question. The Gospel should figure with great priority in our minds. Secondly, there's the demand of the Gospel. The demand of the Gospel. This rich young ruler is right to believe that eternal life is not his by default. Understand that there's an assumption here. He doesn't assume he just has it by default. There's some people that go through this life thinking everything is fine by default. As long as I just kind of, you know, coast through life, I'm going to be fine. As long as I don't do something horrid. So I'm not like an axe murderer or a cannibal or something of that nature. I'm going to be just fine. But this rich young ruler, who as we'll see in a moment, was quite the moral exemplar, is right even here to be questioning. He says, what must be done that I might inherit eternal life? The man wanted to gain assurance in the here and now that he was indeed headed in the right direction, that he would inherit eternal life. By which he probably meant resurrection here, as the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. Daniel 12, 2 says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. 
Understand the Old Testament also spoke of everlasting life and everlasting destruction, as the New Testament declares as well. The reality of heaven and hell. And no in-between, guys. No purgatory. Heaven and hell. And nothing else. There's the eternity before us. Which way are you headed? And this man is rightly concerned about where he's going. Will he inherit eternal life? You see, apart from the good news, all that remains for man is the fearful expectation of judgment coming to what the Bible says. It's not the first death that we should really be scared of. It's the second one. Until the second death is when all those who die without Christ are thrown into the lake of fire where they're tormented throughout all eternity. That's the death to be feared. An everlasting torment in hell. And by the way, that's the rightful deserve of all of us. We all rightly deserve that. We're all rebels. We're all sinners. And we all deserve God's perfect judgment to fall upon us. But because of God's grace and mercy, He provides a means of escape means by which we can enter into his kingdom. And meanwhile, he still maintains his justice and righteousness. We'll get more to that in a minute. This man is also right to drop on his knees before Christ. We're told he drops his knees in Mark 10, 17, and he addresses Jesus as teacher, which Jesus surely was the best teacher to ever walk on earth. He calls Jesus good. But he doesn't seem to understand the full implications of that statement, good Teacher, And Jesus points it out immediately. Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. Now, obviously, Jesus here is not renouncing his own status as God, for he was and proved that to be the case over and over again in the gospel accounts. But he's merely manifesting his deity again by knowing that this man's use of good is in the flippant sense of the use of the word good. It's somewhat akin to the way that we use the word good sometimes. We say, oh, he's a good guy or she's a good gal. He's this flippant kind of horizontal comparison sort of idea of good rather than a vertical comparison to what God calls good. Jesus is wanting to make clear to this man that his definition of good is not good enough. And this becomes all the more pressing we'll see here in just a moment is really there's a discussion going on here about whether or not this man is good. Is he good enough to enter into heaven? Is he good in this man's mind was not perfect goodness. He had cheapened its meaning. Jesus' answer to this man is meant to point this out, to remind him of who alone is good in the ultimate sense, and thereby help him recognize whose standard must be used when it comes to goodness. Who gets to determine what is good? Who gets to declare this is good and that is evil? As we'll see in a moment, this man continued to fail understand continue to fail to understand good rightly. Similar problem has beset people today. Perhaps the situation has only worsened today. Good on what basis? Especially in our kind of relativistic world today. You know, truth is relative. and Therefore, we can, if truth is relative, then certainly goodness and evil is all relative too. So is it good for two men to be married? I'd say absolutely not. But to many in this world, they say that is a good That is something good based on their definitions of good. We can take by this man's silence that he hadn't considered the full implications of his address. Maybe it was just a pretended flattery. We don't know. But Jesus takes exception to it. And he points it out from the the outset. Notice this man then asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew 19.16 states it this way. What good thing must I do to get eternal 
life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? He believes that salvation is earned. Listen to a sermon by Tim Keller this week, and um, he made a really good point regarding this. This rich young ruler's approach is built upon at least two faulty assumptions. Two wrong assumptions that are underlying this man's question. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? There's at least two wrong assumptions here. The first is that eternal life is gained by something you add. That eternal life is something that you gain by adding something. Inherent to the question is, this man is pretty much already saying, and we're going to see that he really does end up affirming it in a minute, he believes that what he needs is just one more step along his life's journey. What other thing am I lacking that I just need to add to my life? I just need to fill my life out. What one final quality do I need to add to my already impeccable record and make sure that I'm set and on the right path and go in the right direction? What do I need to add to my life? There's a lot of people that treat the gospel that way. Um, yeah, I've got my life and I'm doing my own thing. And, oh, you, something about Jesus? Uh, yeah, and... Okay, not going to hell. That sounds good. Okay, yeah, I'll add Jesus. I'll add Jesus. What do I do? I pray a pr- okay, I'll pray a prayer. I'll add Jesus. I'll put the Christian fish on the back of my car. Is that enough? Do I need to do anything else? What can I add to make sure that I now have this assurance of eternal life? This man is wrong on this assumption and thinking that eternal life is just something he just needs to merely add to his life. Christianity is not merely an added element to our already crowded life. Like, oh, let's try to see if we can insert Jesus somewhere in here. It's funny about this time of year, especially with Christmas, right? That This kind of happens a lot with Christmas, right? Like, oh, yeah, we have to, there's an obligation to insert, like, something about Jesus somewhere in the midst of our materialism, you know? So, oh, yeah, don't forget, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. Oh, um, make sure that you show up and uh, make sure when you do caroling that there's something about Jesus in your Christmas carol. And make sure that you attend the Christmas Eve service and... Oh, we make sure that you attend church somewhere around Christmas. Sometimes we, we, there's people that will come into these sorts of uh, times of year with that in mind. The idea of, I just need to add a ritual or join a club. Right? My name is on the right roster or if I'm part of the right church. Maybe that's going to secure me. Maybe I've been to church enough times or I have a big enough Bible at my house or whatever the case may be. To follow Jesus, your whole life must be turned upside down. And that's why this guy is going to walk away sad. Because Jesus is going to give him just some little thing to add to his life. What Jesus' response to this man inherently is, is it's going to turn your life upside down. And he's not ready for that. You see, the priorities of your life will be completely changed. Jesus ultimately says, you have to die to yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Eternal life is not something that you gain just by adding something to a crowded life. It's also not something gained by something you do. That's the other thing that's a problem here. This guy thinks he can add something to his life. He also is wondering, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Yes, what good can be done? Jesus tells the man to obey the commandments. At first glance, this seems strange to us, especially those of us who are very familiar with the gospel, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And when this man asks, what must I do? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Sounds weird to us at first glance. Jesus appeals to the list from some of the Ten Commandments. They're from the second table, as we refer to them. 
Commandments 5 through 10, the ones that are more horizontal in nature. Do not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. Do not murder. It's the sixth commandment. Do not steal. The eighth commandment. Honor your father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. Mark adds, do not defraud. Perhaps another allusion to the ninth commandment, not bearing false witness. Mark uh, or Matthew adds, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of pretty much the whole second part of the law. Loving others as yourself. Jesus says, keep God's commandments. Keep them perfectly. Obey them. This rich young ruler replies, all these I have kept since I was a child. Now this statement is not atypical for Pharisaic claims. Some believe since youth here really should be a reference to this man's bar mitzvah. He's saying, since I became a son of the law, that's what bar mitzvah meant, son of the law. When I became a son of the law, since that point, I have. I've kept all those commandments. I've got a clean record. Reminds us of Paul's own description of his life before Jesus. In Philippians 3, his appraisal of himself was, as the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Paul being a Pharisee, similar sort of thing going on there. The fact this man was morally upright and financially prosperous would have made many believe this man's claim. He's a young man. He's probably within the Sanhedrin. He's morally upright. He has lots of wealth. And this hasn't completely gone away today. Maybe it's been lessened a little bit, but especially in that day, I mean, wealth was almost always a signal of God's blessing. If you had lots of stuff, then God was blessing you. Therefore, you must be doing things right. You see that all in reverse with Job, right? Because when everything gets stripped from Job, what are his friends' immediate reaction? You must have done something wrong. (laughs) You must be engaged in some sort of sin. So they're using that same idea, that theological concept that, Blessing, if you have lots of stuff, it must mean God's blessing, which must mean that God is approving of your life. And so here we have this rich young ruler. He's rich, he's young, he's powerful, he's within the religious establishment, he's morally upright, he's in front of all these people, and he says, I've kept all this from my youth. So obviously if there was someone there to object, he might not have said that. So he thinks he's got a clean bill. He's all set. This man really didn't understand what good is. I find this such an interesting statement too. Like, it seems almost just completely preposterous. You know, what? How prideful! How arrogant! You kept all of these things since your youth. Well, it's quite possible that, according as Pharisees were known for doing, according to the letter of the law, perhaps he hadn't murdered someone. Perhaps he hadn't committed physical adultery with someone. But as Jesus pointed out so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not only the physical engagement in these things, but the mental desires for such things. A man lusts in his heart after a woman, he's committed the kin to the sin of adultery. Or if he's hated someone from the heart, it's as if he's murdered him. This man really didn't understand what good is. And if he did, he would realize that the nice Good guys are just as much in need of God's grace as the vile, openly rebellious ones. Maybe some of you have neighbors that fall into the category of a good guy, a good old boy living next door. 
I've got one next door to me in my house. We pray for him. And had some amount of relationship with him. Had one occasion where I was able to share the gospel with him. He was pretty resistant. But he needs the gospel just as much as the openly vile, murderous, mass killer on death row needs the gospel. And sometimes it's people's own moralism that hinders them the most from coming to Jesus. Their own self-righteousness. Their own thought that they're going to make it there on their own. Matthew tells us that the man, even having said all of this, this is interesting. I mean, if he really felt he had it all together, why is he even asking the question? Why is he even coming to Jesus? Why the uncertainty? Matthew tells us the man seemed to think, even after all of that, he says, but what do I still lack? See that? I've kept, so even if he had kept all of this, he still feels in his heart that he's lacking something. This reminds me that God has given men a conscience that convicts us of wrongdoing. And this man, though he posited to have kept all the commandments, he had a suspicion that he was still lacking. Even if outwardly he had conformed to the rabbinical teaching, he knew that he lacked something. Remember, to obey God includes not only avoiding sins of commission, but also sins of omission. So he's saying, what have I failed to do? Maybe I haven't done those things wrong, but what have I failed to do, Jesus? He seems to feel that he's avoided committing sinful acts, but perhaps he's failed to complete something that's required. So what else do I need to add? And so Jesus uses his language and he says to him, you still lack one thing. Yes, there is one thing. I find this so gracious of Jesus. I mean, you know, I have the tendency to be like, you liar. Yeah, right. You've kept all those things from your youth. You've never violated any of the spirit of the law. Yeah, right. But instead, Jesus says, okay, one thing you lack, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. I mean, at first glance, this, this seems strange. Why doesn't the Lord just refute that preposterous statement that this man had previously made? How could he say that there was just one thing lacking? But... I think upon a deeper evaluation, what we see is that Jesus takes aim at this man's heart. He deals with this man's heart. And out of great compassion, he enlightens the man to his great failure to truly love God and others. Mark 10.21 tells us that Jesus loved the man. So I believe this instruction was sincere. It's interesting that the one thing that this man lacked goes along with the one commandment from the Ten Commandments the second table of the Ten Commandments that Jesus did not mention specifically earlier, and that is, you shall not covet. And herein lies the man's big problem. This one thing is also all-encompassing because it stands for a host of sins. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Please be very careful when you quote verses like that, right? Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Many evils come from the love of money. Interestingly, this statement from Jesus also speaks to the entire first table of the law, all the ones that are directed towards God. This man's problem was his failure to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus puts his finger right on the man's ailment. It is like he's removing the cancer right from us. He's bringing it up to the surface. He's saying, here it is. Here's the issue. Here's the heart of the matter. Jesus makes it seemingly clear that if you want to follow me, this rich man must first part with his love of earthly riches. 
In exchange, you assure to find treasures in heaven. Jesus says, you're going to get something much better than all that junk. But you must part ways with it. It's going to involve earthly sacrifice. Jesus chose to give the man something to do that would reveal his unrighteousness before the law. Ultimately, it would be upon trusting in Christ alone that this man could enter into the kingdom of God and be granted eternal life. So Jesus' answer to the man is this. For eternal life, you must place your complete confidence in me. You must repent of your idolatry, your love of money and stuff. You must surrender to my commands, forsake your social status, forsake your financial privileges, and come follow me. Sounds just like Jesus' radical call to count the cost in Luke 14.33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let me clarify quickly. Jesus' point is not that all Christians are commanded to give up all possessions in order to be a Christian. The point is this, that Christians find Jesus as their highest treasure. In obedience to Him, and out of obedience to Him, they'll give anything and everything to Him. Jesus here pierces through this man's camouflage, and He makes it intensely personal. Jesus read this man's soul, and He was rooting this thing out. You see, there's always going to be a power struggle over the soul. To be saved, a man has to be stripped of all the idols in his life. Anything that vies for ultimate allegiance. This has to be rooted out and replaced with love for God. Anything that functions as my fondest dream, if it's not Jesus, must be exposed and eradicated. If it isn't, it will actually end up being the very monster that destroys me. That's the crazy thing, isn't it? That with wealth in particular, this is truth sin in general, but wanton materialism, love of money, is that often what happens is the stuff ends up owning you. You think you're holding it, but it's really grasping you. I always chuckle when somebody gets a brand new car and it's something expensive because they park eight miles away from the grocery store, right? Because they want anybody to park next to them because they might dang, bang it or you know, ding it or something of that nature. Like, all of a sudden, this car has changed their entire life. Their priorities, where they park, all the rest, it all changes as a result of this possession. The gospel, you see, makes demands. And since this man spoke with the real Jesus, he heard the real gospel, which always demands more than you think, but offers more than you could ever imagine. Note that in Jesus' statement. You're going to give up all this stuff. But get this, don't miss this. You're going to have treasures in heaven. There's something better. There's something far better than you could ever imagine that I have here to offer you. The gospel, though, does not allow you to walk away indifferent. You're either going to be humbled and bow before God, or you'll be offended. One or the other. You can't walk away indifferent. If you hear the genuine gospel, if you come to the real Jesus, and you hear the real gospel, you'll either be humbled and broken and thankful and grateful, or you'll be offended. Message of the cross is an offense to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power and wisdom of God. The gospel does not remain merely an academic exercise. This is not like, oh, hey, Jesus, give me your two cents, and I'd like to add that to my knowledge bank of things that lead to the inheriting of eternal life. Jesus makes this personal. Your heart and soul are involved. It's a question of what is ultimately most important to us. Just think about this. Why did God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Why that? 
Because if there was anywhere where Abraham's allegiance might be tested best, it was there. Abraham longed for a son. God promised him that he'd have one. Remember that they kind of muck up the works a little bit by having stuff with Hagar and then having Ishmael along the way. But God says, no, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And he does have Isaac. But then some years later, when God tells him to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him to me, what God was doing there is he was demonstrating that Abraham's hopes and dreams were rightly placed in God and God alone. The very one who gave him his son in the first place. He hadn't allowed Isaac to trump the place of God. God had first place. And so it is for all of us. Your thing might not be money. It might be something else. But there's only one thing that will rule supreme in your heart. That's why Jesus says a man can't serve two masters. Serve the one, hate the other, despise the other. You can't serve, he says there literally, God and mammon or God and wealth. One or the other will rule. You see, the gospel draws a line. It makes an emphatic truth claim and it calls for a response. This man, once he hears Jesus' radical call for commitment, becomes very sad, we're told, because he was a man of great wealth. Mark 22, 10.22 tells us that this man's face fell. He became very sullen. He didn't want to part with his earthly riches. He was hoping that Jesus could merely add something to his present lifestyle. And eternal life would just be one more add or good that he could add to, to his earthly life. But Jesus called for death to this life in order to have an eternal one. Ultimately, the issue is not money itself. Let me make this clear again. The issue is not ultimately money itself. Money is morally neutral in and of itself. It can be used for good or used for ill. But it was this man's attitude towards money. It was his heart towards money. And that was what was uncovered here. Because of this man's idolatry, his love of money, there was no way he would give it up to the poor, showing that he really hadn't fulfilled what was implicit to the second table of the law. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. He ultimately showed that he didn't love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength because he wouldn't obey what God, what Jesus had told him to do. For this man, gold had replaced God, and therefore gold had become God. What a difference when Jesus tells about the parable of the one who finds the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field. Remember what that guy does? The guy who finds the pearl of great price sells everything else he has so he can go and buy that one pearl. He says, that pearl is of such worth that all the rest of the junk I've got should be sold immediately. All these trinkets, be gone. I want that. That is what I'm after. Same thing with the man who finds the treasure in the field. He's like, he covers it back up and then he does all he can to buy the field. Why? Because the treasure's in the field. You see, when somebody comes in contact with Jesus and really sees him as his treasure, then everything else is changed. Your attitude and commitment to everything else is changed. You see, attachment to God requires detachment from this world. Attachment to God requires detachment from this world. Jesus proclaims the genuine gospel and it calls for a decision. Let's quickly finish up by looking at the how. That's the what. What is the gospel? It makes these demands. It should be a priority. It calls for a response. But how do we approach this? How do we learn to evangelize? What is our preoccupation in evangelism? 
The rich young ruler had come to the right place. He came with the right question. For Jesus was the foremost authority on the subject of eternal life. But how is it that this opportunity arose? Why did he come to Jesus? That's my question. Well, it becomes quite obvious because Jesus perfectly lived out the truth of the gospel. Why would you go to Michael Jordan to ask him about basketball? These guys proved time and time again his awesomeness on the basketball court. Why would you go to a world-renowned scientist with a scientific question? Because they've proved themselves an expert in their field. Why would this man come to Jesus asking a question about eternal life? Because Jesus had modeled what eternal life is all about. And ask this question for us, because if we're preoccupied with evangelism, then our lives will exude the priorities of the gospel. And you will have people asking you questions of these sorts of nature. If you never have anyone ask you ever a question about anything spiritual, then you ought to question, is my life preoccupied with the gospel? When I talk with people in general, do they hear me talking about Jesus? Or is Jesus always a long afterthought? This man comes to Jesus because his life exuded the gospel. Jesus' life drew men to the Father. There's the sweet savor of life on Jesus' lips and on his hands. Jesus was completely preoccupied with God the Father's will. And he said what God the Father's will was, that of all those given to him, he lose nothing, that he raised them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. He was consumed with God the Father's will. And what was God the Father's will? That all those who were given to the Son would be granted eternal life. Jesus is preoccupied with the Father's will to raise up all those who believe in Him, granting them eternal life. So those who know the Gospel must live the Gospel. We must be utterly preoccupied with it. We must recognize that at all times and all places we are ambassadors for Christ. Now this is what then forms such an interesting situation. Because if Jesus' whole ministry was all wrapped around this thing, doing the will of His Father, which was to grant eternal life to those given to Him, then it seems like this is a slam-dunk opportunity, doesn't it? Here you have a man, rich, young ruler, seemingly living a quite a moral life. And at least seemingly admitting some amount of humility because he's lacking something. Seems like everything going for him. Interesting turn we'll take. Preoccupied with, the, with, the, with evangelism. The gospel should exude from our lives. What is our duty in evangelism? Well, let me first start with this, what our responsibility is not. We can't save people. This is God's work alone. God saves. God saves sinners. That's the gospel. So therefore, manipulating or coercing people doesn't help them at all. Just develops sham conversions, fake conversions, and that really lovers of Christ or lovers of God. So manipulating and coercing doesn't work at all, so stop doing it. What is our responsibility? It's to share the truth with others out of love and obedience to God's command for God's glory. And I think we ought to begin as the Bible does. For a lot of people in our day to day, they need to be first confronted with the fact that God exists and creation bears witness to Him as Creator. And if He's Creator... And he's sustainer, and he's also ruler, and governor, and judge. And we're all accountable to him. 
and we're all sinners and we're all worthy of judgment. But God, in his marvelous grace and mercy, has sent his son, Jesus, to take the curse of the law upon himself, to die in sinner's stead. You see, in order to preach the gospel, you have to deal with sin. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. It's so interesting. Jesus goes through the Ten Commandments. This is a good pattern for us to be able to utilize. Use God's law to expose man's sin. Now, Jesus could have confronted him on each one of those things that he said he kept from his youth. But instead, Jesus takes another tack and just goes, okay, well, I know your heart is just hopelessly given to riches. So let's deal with that. You're not putting God first in your life. Jesus models how to proclaim the gospel. In no way should we ever lessen the demands of the gospel. We call sinners to repent. We ask them to turn to God and to trust in Jesus to save them. And this is why the conduct of so many churches today is such a tra- uh, travesty. To fail to mention sin is to fail to proclaim the gospel. But the good news doesn't really make sense apart from understanding the problem from which we're being rescued. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to be saved from something if you don't know that you're in dire need of rescue or help. So our method must never undercut our message. The Lord cares not only about the ends, but the means. Here's a quote from John MacArthur. Evangelism that does not confront people with their utter sinfulness and helplessness is not faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how much his name and his word may be invoked, a profession of Christ that does not include confession and repentance of sin does not bring salvation. No matter how much pleasant emotion may result... To tell an unbeliever that God has a wonderful plan for his life can be seriously misleading. If the unbeliever turns to Christ and is saved, God does indeed have a wonderful plan for him. But if he does not turn to Christ, God's only plan for him is damnation. So what response is called for in evangelism? There are many who would say that this event was a complete failure by Jesus. I mean, we seem to have the perfect candidate for Christianity. A young man, highly respected, deeply moral, addressing Jesus with reverence. He gets on his knees. He calls him good teacher. He asks, what do I lack? What must I do to be saved? I mean, what else? What else? I mean, if you had that situation happen right here today, he comes right here in front of us and does all those things. How would we respond? Would we respond the way that Jesus did? This text addresses all those whose lives have been conducted with a good deal of morality and openly declares that we're all in need of grace. There's something lacking from all who try to get along on their own. This wealthy ruler had come searching, but at the moment of discovery, he then turns away. The call to discipleship was rejected by this man. But note this, Jesus did not fail in this regard. Jesus perfectly pinpointed what this man's God was. It was his wealth. As a matter of fact, what he did here is he prevented this man from becoming a nominal convert, merely taking on the name of Christian without actually loving Jesus with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. I wonder how many modern evangelistic methods fail at this point. I mean, this man, put in our context, was ready to sign a card, ready to raise his hand, ready to pray a prayer, ready to walk an aisle, ready to do what good thing do I need to do? It will seal this thing up and we'll be all good. 
There are many who have been falsely assured that they're saved. Jesus wouldn't provide this man with false assurance, even though he seemed so ready. I remember a number, a number of years ago, I was in my office. I had a student in the youth group that had come to me and, and literally asked this question. He asked me, Jess, what must I do to be saved? And I can remember just being like, wow, yeah, well, yes, let's sit down and talk about this. So I can remember walking through, I did a little quick bridge illustration, talked to him about God's sovereignty, man's sinfulness, God's provision of Jesus, the requirement that we repent and believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, all of this with him. And as I was talking and sharing, it was so weird, but as I continued to talk, he seemed to get more and more distant and completely lethargic and seemed to not even care. So by the time I got to the end of it, I said to him, I said, uh, well, how do, what do you think about all that? He said, oh, I don't really know. And I can remember um, shortly after that, I said, well, okay, well, um, I'll be praying for you. And if you'd like to talk further, I'd love to do that. And he walked out. That was the last time I saw him youth group. Never came back to the church again. And all I can think of in my mind is I'm so thankful that I didn't just lead him in a prayer. I'm so thankful I didn't just have him sign a card. So thankful I didn't have him just walk an aisle. But instead presented the gospel. Because there's a good number of people. What is the parable of the soils all about if it's not that? There are people who will show on the surface some interest, but ultimately not really love Christ. This man goes away very sad. Jesus looks at him and says, it's hard, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed by this. Again, as I stated earlier, they would have thought in their minds that if he's got riches, he's blessed by God, he must be doing something right, all the rest. Instead, Jesus says it's even more difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. The disciples respond, if that's the case, then who's going to be saved? I mean, if those people that we look up to as being blessed by God and having it all together, part of the Sanhedrin, this is one of the morally upright, if he is not in the kingdom, what about anybody else? To which Jesus says, well, the impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, you're right. Because you can't buy your way into heaven. Literally, the Greek reads kind of like in Yoda style the impossible for men, possible with God is. Salvation has always been impossible for men to accomplish, and yet salvations continue to occur because that which is impossible for men is possible for God. That's why it's the gospel. That's why it's good news. No one can buy their way to heaven. Zephaniah 118. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, and indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. You're not going to be able to pay him off. Because for that matter, all the cattle and all the money is his anyway. When we stress the sovereignty of God's free grace and salvation, we do so knowing that apart from this fact, we would all go to hell. If left up to us, there is no hope. But when we sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, we do so who are Christians, full of fervent expression because we know that God's grace is amazing and it is beyond our wildest dreams. Salvation has always been God's free gift. It cannot be earned by human achievement. And so there's good news there. It sounds like bad news. You tell somebody, how do I get into the kingdom of God? Well, it's impossible for you to do that. It's like horrible news. But the good news is that what's impossible for you is possible for God. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. You see, rather than making men feel good about themselves, the best we can do is to help them despair of any righteousness found in themselves, that they might plead to God for forgiveness through Christ's death and justification through Christ's righteousness given to them as a free gift. What's so sad about this occasion is that this rich young ruler walks away grieving because he failed to give up fleeting earthly treasures for the true treasure of Jesus. His mind and heart were so consumed with earthly goods and he was so blinded to the, that he was blinded as a result to the much better riches that Jesus was offering. But that's so similar to today's situation. There are so many today that live their lives amassing stuff that ultimately will be stripped from them. And if it's not by rust or moth or thieves, it'll be stripped from them over through their cold, dead fingers. You're not taking anything with you that way. To have riches which are consumed with this world is to be poor in the life to come. But should you have the riches that are found in Jesus Christ, you have a treasure that will never be taken away from you. And what is truly astonishing about the gospel, it close with this thought, is that we learned that we are not only we not only get Jesus as our treasure, but we discover in the gospel that Jesus treasures us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What amazing love. That he, what is man that you would think of him? You'd be mindful of him, the psalmist says. Not only does God see our situation, but he saw the impossibility of us saving ourselves. So he sent a Savior who died and rose again. Don't walk away grieving from Jesus, blindly clutching to that which you cannot keep. Instead, run to Jesus and look to him as your treasure, which you'll never lose in him as eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your marvelous gospel. This good news that that which is impossible for men is possible for you. That you have accomplished what we could not. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to understand it aright. That you give us clarity of mind as we consider its truth. And that you'd also then help us in our approach to others, that we would love them and be loving in our proclamation of the truth, such that we wouldn't sugarcoat or remove the offense, because we know it's that very offense that is used by your Holy Spirit to bring about genuine salvation. So we pray that the genuine gospel would be proclaimed in the biblical manner. Help us in this, Lord. We're all struggling. We're all growing and learning in this. Lord, we pray even in these moments that there are some here who do not know You, that You would grant them eyes to see the glory of Jesus, that they would see Him as their treasure and renounce everything else to have Him. Thank You, Lord, for Your marvelous grace bestowed upon us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.